welcome everyone to episode 73, Bench to Business. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Daylon James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Daylon? Hanging in there, Kiki. I'm pretty wiped out. The summer is winding down. I thought the summer was supposed to be for like recuperation, relaxation, rejuvenation, the three R's, but I'm just ramming around this whole season. I've been ramming around nonstop and I'm wiped. I need a rest. Uh, Maybe you can look forward to, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas holidays end of the year. That'll be it. Keep going until the end of the year and you can take a rest. To be honest, I'm just ready to have my kids out of the house again. You know what I mean? Oh, back to school. Yeah. Back to school. <laughs> Can't happen soon enough. Yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. I know getting work done while my five-year-old is running around the house. Mommy, 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 mommy. It's always a little bit harder than I anticipate. I have all these goals. I'm like, I'm going to do this today and that today. Yeah. And it never happens. And you had a kid. Yeah, that's right. He's starting kindergarten? That is back to school, the first first kindergarten? Is that what's going on? Yeah. Are you nervous? Are you anxious? I am, yeah. I mean, we'll see. Don't worry. He's going he's gonna to perform well. Academic all-star. I'm sure he's really good with the blocks. He's going to be great, yeah. He's going to be fantastic. It's just me. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> me being able to get up in time to get him to school in the morning. That's what I'm concerned about. That's going to be the challenge. <laughs> Oh, my He'll goodness. Yeah. He'll do Full faith in you, Kiki. Thank you. I can do this. I can do this. I can also let us get started with this show. Everyone, make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com. This is where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, just like signing up for our newsletter. And if you sign up for the newsletter... We're going to email you when a new show is released, and that's going to contain all of the links to the papers that we discuss in the roundup, as well as a detailed show summary. Makes your life easier. Additionally, signing up for our stem cell forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on the social medias at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, Dalen, we have a great show today. Our guest for episode 73 is Dr. Alan Eaves. He's a stem cell biologist turned businessman. He started Stem Cell Technologies, and that's one of the biggest private companies in the stem cell space. And it's also one of Canada's largest biotech companies. We're going to talk to him about his journey from the bench to big business, and we're really looking forward to talking with him a little bit later. But first, time to round it up. You ready? I'm ready for the science roundup, Kiki. It's sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, I want to hear about your science. Will you bring it? I have got some really great science. So you're a parent, and do you have any memory of those uh, wonderful 
sleepless nights <laughs> when you have a newborn and you're, you know, you have to wake up in the middle of the night and run to the crying newborn and then you get them back to sleep again and the middle of the night feedings and no memory, no memory, <laughs> totally suppressed PTSD, only recoverable under hypnosis. <laughs> yeah. I, it, my friend of mine refers to that period of time in parenthood as the magic eraser period. It's just like you, you live through it and you're like, I'm never going to forget how terrible it was. And then the memory just, it just disappears. Magic eraser. Do, 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 all gone. It's just like, um, childbirth. My wife always says, if you remembered how miserable it was, how painful it was, then you would never have another kid. There must be something inborn that wipes the slate so you can, you know, reset and go through the misery once more. Well, if you go through the misery one time or multiple times, Taking care of the baby and making sure that they sleep well through the night and safely through the night is very important. There are many children who are lost as a result of sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS. And um, there are also other reasons for infant death in the crib related to loose objects, pillows, blankets, other things that are left in the crib and can suffocate or strangle a child. And so some researchers published in the September issue of Pediatrics a, a study in which they actually put video cameras in the houses of 162 Pennsylvanian families. And even though the parents knew that they were being videotaped, a lot of them didn't end up following all of the safe sleeping baby guidelines that parents are given. And the researchers think, you know, okay, there is probably a lot of sleeplessness, just parents being tired that leads to this. But they found that almost every baby had loose bedding in the crib. So there sometimes were really weird objects like cords and electrical wires. And once even a pet was observed in, in a crib with the babies. Um, there was also a lot, a lot of bed hopping. So even though beds start the night and uh, babies start the night in a crib, by the morning, they might be like in the bed with the parent, wedged in between the parent and pillows and other things, which is actually pretty dangerous for the child if you don't have a safe area set out. And so the colleagues just are this analysis or this ob observational study just goes to show that even though there is education getting out to parents about how to place your baby in a bed and how to do it safely, not all parents and the majority of parents may not be doing it. And so uh, really, this is a point where education needs to be uh, increased for parents so that we can reduce the risk of things like SIDS, death, and try and even get those tired parents to put things together like maybe a bassinet in the bedroom next to the bed as opposed to that crib in a different room that just makes it hard to keep your baby in a safe situation. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I get it. Gotta go safe. I mean, there's an acronym, what? On their back, back to sleep, memory, mm -hmm. all those things. Yeah. But, you know, I get it also with these parents. They know they're being videotaped, but the desperation. When you got a sleeping baby, it's not just because you're totally exhausted and, you know, everything's a fog. But the desperation for your kid to stay asleep is yeah. so ridiculous, you know? Yeah. Like, you can't do anything. I remember when my kids were, were newborn, you know, you couldn't crumple a piece of paper for fear that that irregular sound would set them off. They're so. going to wake up. Oh, my goodness. I get it. But, you know, you got to keep the kids safe. got to keep them safe. Yeah. And the, the finding new ways to make that possible and make it easier for parents might be a good direction for future work.
Yeah, you know what they have actually? Have you seen these these micro monitors? They can actually see the kids breathing in the crib and can see all these minor movements. I think we're moving into an age where the kid's going to be totally monitored there. It's going to take some of the stress off the parents. You know, maybe that'll be some step in the right direction. My fingers are crossed. Absolutely. Maybe we'll even have mattresses that measure carbon dioxide levels. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Maybe good. we'll even have robots. <laughs> right. <just> parent for you. <laughs> That's the way to do it. There you go. Sleep through the night with your robo nanny. <laughs> do you have a dog? No. No, I don't either. But people who do have dogs might be interested in a project that was launched called Darwin's Dogs. And it is a citizen science project in which researchers at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester? Worcester. Worcester. (laughs) They're looking for DNA from dogs, good dogs and bad dogs, all kinds of dogs. Their goal is to uncover the genes that regulate behavior in dogs, but not just dogs. There are a lot of genes that humans and our pets, we share them. And so potentially looking at genes that govern behavior in dogs can also uncover genes that are related to mental illness in our pets and ourselves. Researchers previously have found out about the genetics of narcolepsy, OCD, cancer, blindness, other things from studying purebred dogs. But in this particular situation, the researchers are sending out surveys so that a family can take an online quiz about the dog to gather information about their appearance, their habits, how they exercise, behaviors, all sorts of questions related to just the dog itself and and what it does and how it does it. And then you take a saliva swab from their mouth and send that in along with that survey you've done online. And in some amount of time, they're not saying when the results are going to come back, but at some point in time, you'll get results on your dog's raw genetic data, as well as the dog's possible ancestry. And then it's also going to go into a database of many, 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 many dogs that might help us start pinpointing genes related to particular behaviors, like why some dogs bark all day long when you leave the house, or why other dogs are prone to aggression, or, you know, lots of things. Yeah, I don't have a dog. My mother has these two dogs, these two Jack Russells, and, you know, I, I really pity them because they're so inbred, these, these breeds. That one of them's blind, and one of them, I'm convinced, is schizophrenic. I, I, I thought <laughs> you said you had some insight into mental disorders. I don't know how you know if a dog is mentally disabled or schizophrenic or just a dog. But um, I'm convinced that this one of my mom's is schizo. I'm going to have to swab that cheek, send it in. Do it! Do it! Yes! Darwin's dog. Get your mom involved in the study. It'd be great. Uh, yes. CitizenSciencedarwinsDogs.org is the website that you can go to. It's a pretty cool idea. It's great that they give you the feedback, too. You know, recruiting the people to, to contribute to the study is one thing, but actually giving them the results on their own pet. Yeah. Pretty cool idea. Yeah. So it's not just, oh, I'm donating this information to science. You're actually getting some feedback as well. And you can use that when you go to the veterinarian, possibly. Potentially, if a veterinarian is genetic and understands genetics and Anywho, other research published in the August 18th issue of Current Biology, researchers uh, looking at mice were looking at a particular population of cells in the hypothalamus called um, hypocretin or or orexin-producing cells. And um, the reason that they were looking at them is that orexin 
also called hypocretin, is a neurotransmitter hormone within the brain that is known to stimulate hunger. It's stimu- hypocretin orexin also stimulates many other types of behaviors because it's tied in very closely with um, hypothalamic activity. It is also involved just very closely with metabolism in general. But in people who have narcolepsy, it's been found that these cells are pretty much missing. And so there's been this question about, okay, what is, there's a link in here somewhere because narcoleptics are more likely to be overweight than other people. And so researchers are trying to figure out how orexin is tied in with appetite regulation and potentially with narcolepsy and these these other things. So neuroscientist Jerome Siegel of UCLA started this study, and he says that these cells suggest that orexin cells are a natural obesity defense mechanism. And if you lose them, animals and humans gain weight. So when they monitored these cells in the brains of mice, when the mice started eating, the cells stopped talking. So there was no, no more orexin hypocretin signaling happening while the mice were eating. The second they stopped eating, they started talking again. So the cells start resumed their activity. And so this whole study is tying in with this complicated literature that involves many other hormones and neurotransmitters related to appetite regulation. But the end result here, it suggests that there is a potential that we could give orexin to people like narcoleptics who lack it, and it might reduce obesity. And just in people with obesity in general, giving orexin to them may generally reduce obesity by reducing your hunger. Hmm. You know, I don't buy it. I, I wish it were so. <laughs> I wish we could just give them Rexin and they'd get skinny, but probably they're going to have to stop eating too. I know that when I'm super mm-hmm. tired, have you ever been like up way too long or gotten yeah. not enough sleep and you get hungry and you just go for the net junkiest food you can imagine, McDonald's, fries, and a burger? Yeah. I, I totally firsthand know how that is. Clearly there's a there's a <laughs> link there, but you know... I don't think you can maintain bad habits and still be skinny. Absolutely. I think that the habits themselves have to be changed. But it's, it is an interesting, an interesting piece of information into this very complex system. Our behavior is derived from social, psychological, and also physiological stimuli. So it's complex. And as many pieces in this puzzle as possible could maybe help us figure it out a little bit. And finally, we have not just the food we eat, but where does the food that we eat come from? Much of our food relies on pollinators. And over the last several years, we've found that there's been a massive decline in honeybees as a result of a link that's not only, but very tied to neonicotinoid pesticides. Now, the there are two studies published this week that make the problem... Even worse, (laughs) butterflies in Northern California seems to be uh, that they are also affected by these neonicotinoid pesticides. A study published in Biology Letters, August 16th, by Matthew Forrester and his team out of the University of Nevada has found that uh, since 
1990, butterfly species in California's Central Valley have dropped, and they tracked 67 butterfly species at four different locations for at least 20 years. And uh, the decline corresponds, you know, it's not a cause necessarily, but it is linked correlatively to an increased neonicotinoid use in that area. They did not find a similar correlation between land development, warmer summers, because we have been experiencing warmer and warmer years, or other possibilities. And then the other study looked again at bees, but this time wild bees. Researchers in England at the University of York mapped data for 62 wild bee species in the UK alongside neonicotinoid treatment in Brassica napis, local oilseed rape fields. And this was over 18 years. So again, a fairly long-term study. And they found that uh, population's possibility of going extinct increased with the use of the pesticides. This is published, uh, again, August 16th issue of Nature Communications. So together, this is pretty long-term data, about two decades for each study, adding to the idea that these neonic pesticides are really affecting our pollinators, and it's not just sporadic, but pretty regional and national, and this is not good. Not good. Terrible. Bad for agribusiness. Bees are major pollinators, but I like this study focused on butterflies. Some people are like, who cares? Butterflies are just pretty. But it's, you know, these butterflies, a lot of the species have co-evolved with some of the local flora. Mm -hmm. And they're like the only thing that has the right proboscis or whatever it is to get there and and feed. And therefore, they're kind of like the sole pollinators for a lot of plant species. So if the species of butterflies are declining, in all likelihood, the secondary effect of that's going to be the plants are going to go away too, right? Yeah, that's a high possibility. If you don't have the pollination, the plants can't do it. And then you know, this may not be the issue for the large agribusiness agriculture, but for diversity of species in the ecosystem as a whole, that's where we're going to be looking at some major problems. Pretty scary stuff. Bad news. You're giving me a lot of bad news today. I'm sorry. Uh, but there's, there was another uh, headline that I saw that some, some guy um, brought back a species of butterfly from the brink of extinction by breeding them in his backyard. Well, hello. So what's that? There we 1, go. species extinct, but we've brought one back from the brink. That's right. Yes, uh, 0.1% ain't bad. Still pretty bad news, though, Kiki. I got to say bad news, and I got more bad news. Oh, okay. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm going to set up my stem cell portion. I mean, I don't know. You might not be in a rush to hear this. I've been dreading this piece of news, and I, you know, thought that it was just my paranoia. But unfortunately, as usual, I was right. Ha-ha. Zika virus. We're back to Zika. And the, the, the real bad news here is that it's not just about fetal brain development, but Zika virus might affect learning and memory in adults is the implication of this study. So the bottom line is that they, they, you know, everyone's talked about Zika and the microcephaly. But the question is, you know, although the, the idea was that the Zika was a transient viral infection in patients, and the real consequences were to women who were pregnant. A question that's been out there, and I, I remember asking this uh, when we were interviewing uh, our, our show about Zika, is there a danger for young kids or even adults? And it seems like there may be. This group took mice 
although they weren't adult, they were kind of juvenile, six-week-old mice, and they infected them with Zika, essentially, and looked to see what the consequences are. So several studies have shown that Zika can infect neural stem cells in the fetal and developing brain, but no one's really looked in the adult brain. And there's two areas in the adult brain. You know, in the fetal brain, all the neural progenitors are blowing up, massive growth. But even in the adult brain, there's a couple of regions that have these neural progenitor stem cells. There's the subventricular zone in the anterior forebrain and the subgranular zone in the hippocampus. In this study, they showed that blood-borne Zika, if you administer blood-borne Zika to these patients, you get pronounced evidence of Zika infection in these adult neural stem cells. And this infection leads to cell death and reduced proliferation. So, you know, these data kind of suggest that it's not just the fetal neural stem cells that are vulnerable, but also the adult that are vulnerable to Zika virus neuropathology. And although it's been considered as a transient infection without long-term effects, there may be some consequences that we haven't really seen borne out yet. And it may be a few years from now that we see some of these patients that were infected with Zika may have some memory or learning deficits. I mean, I'm hoping not. Because, you know, there's not a ton of proliferation in the adult brain. It's a pretty stable, steady state. But anytime you have a virus going in there and attacking the progenitor stem cells, it's a pretty scary idea. Mm -hmm. So I'm panicking a little bit. You know, Zika's coming to the States. The weather's getting warmer all over. As years go over year, I feel like the ecosystem for these mosquitoes, the Avis aegypti, that carry the Zika, are only going to become more extant. So I think I may just have to be a shut-in or something. It's getting scary out there. <laughs> Walk around in your own personal mosquito net. I mean, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. Mosquito net hat dresses <laughs> for the great outdoors. There you go. That'd be our only choice if we want to not turn into zombies, brain dead. Oh, geez. But, you know, on the, on the tails of that bad news, I got something that may be good news, although I'm, you know, a little skeptical. This is uh, the idea that melatonin, you know, a hormone produced in the human brain, it appears to suppress the growth of breast cancer tumors. Researchers at Michigan State published this week in the current issue, or just recently in the current issue of Genes and Cancer, that melatonin may actually suppress the growth of breast cancer cells. The brain manufactures melatonin only at night to regulate sleep cycles, and epidemiologists have speculated that the lack of melatonin, because we live in this, you know, modern society where there's always lights on and people are always sleep deprived, you know, that these conditions put women uh, in our modern society at higher risk for breast cancer. And this latest study at Michigan State showed that melatonin suppresses the growth of breast cancer stem cells, providing a kind of scientific proof supporting the growing body of anecdotal evidence that sleep deprivation is connected to uh, the development and occurrence of breast cancer. So, how did they do this? Well, what the scientists did is that they grew tumors from tumor stem cells, known as, as mammospheres. This is a, something that was developed and perfected by James Trosco at MSU, and a visiting researcher in his lab used these mammospheres to test this hypothesis that melatonin may suppress breast cancer growth. The melatonin treatment of these manospheres significantly decreased the number and size of the manospheres when compared to the control group. And more than that, when the cells were stimulated with 
estrogen or this bisphenol BPA, which has been shown to like hyperactivate these manospheres and get them going when they were treated with the BPA or estrogen in conjunction with melatonin at the same time, there was an even greater reduction in the number and size of manospheres. So according to James Trasco, who is involved in the work, this work establishes the principle by which cancer stem cell growth may be regulated by natural hormones and provides an important new technique to screen for chemicals for cancer-promoting effects as well as identify potential new drugs for use in the clinic. So, you know, while treatments based on this discovery are still years away, I think the result may give some insight to scientists and, and provide some foundation on which to build future research and approaches for treating breast cancer, namely, get more sleep, although I doubt that that's going to be a, a prescription that women affected by breast cancer are going to take very seriously. Yeah, I mean, there are multiple causes and multiple routes to breast cancers. Like the Orexin story earlier, it's not going to be as simple as taking melatonin. So this isn't the kind of thing where, oh, just go and take melatonin every night and suddenly, ta-da, you're protected. But there are definitely many studies that suggest that the circadian clock is important to the maintenance of cell cycles and that if we are able to keep regular schedules, that that enhances our circadian clock. Melatonin is highly integrated into that. So it may be that there is a link that melatonin is involved in that chain of events very, very closely. Like you said earlier, no, no magic bullet here. We're not going to cure cancer. I don't, I don't think so, yeah. At least we'll gain some insight, you know, maybe understanding. And that's the beginning yeah. of solving any problem. Yeah, there are researchers who really suggest, you know, get out, have a regular schedule, go to bed at about the same time every night, get up about the same time every day, eat at about the same time every day, don't have a weird, wacky schedule, and that will help your body protect itself. Well, I'll tell you what, Kiki, those researchers with all their great advice don't have kids. You know what I'm That's saying? That's true. I know. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Maybe they do. Maybe they do. God bless them. All right. So let's move on. You know, everyone talks a lot about the potential for pluripotent stem cells. One of the major ideas there for induced patient-derived pluripotent stem cells is this kind of personalized medicine idea where you can take, you know, different people and with this precision approach, generate IPS cells and look and see if they have a some specialized vulnerability and see how they will handle uh, variable toxicity and or efficacy of certain drugs, you know, a screening platform, so to speak, to say, is this drug going to work on this person? Let's get their IPS cells and let's see. Well, a lot of people talk about it, but I'll tell you who's doing it. It's Joseph Wu. Joseph Wu out of Stanford in this new cell stem cell paper, he's doing it. Title is Transcriptome Profiling of Patient-Specific Human IPSC Cardiomyocytes Predicts Individual Drug Safety and Efficacy Responses in Vitro. It's a mouthful, but I'll just tell you what he did. Very broad strokes here. What they did is they essentially took like a bona fide human heart tissue, and they also matched it. They took from that same heart tissue, you know, IPS cells that were derived from that tissue that were then differentiated into cardiomyocytes. So they had cardiomyocytes that were bona fide from a patient, and then they had cardiomyocytes that were derived from IPS cells from those patients. And they did this transcriptome, global transcriptome profiling of these two groups of cells. And ultimately what they showed is that looking at these pairs, that there was greater interpatient variation 
Then there was intrapatient variation, which is to say that the IPS-derived cardiomyocytes looked like their bona fide counterparts. And there was variation between patients, kind of supporting this idea that cardiomyocytes from different patients may be responding differently or may have a different profile. And that profile may be reflected in the IPS-derived cardiomyocytes that you get from those patients. So they went further than that even. They uh, looked using transcriptome analysis. Again, they predicted and risk stratified these patient-specific cells and, and looked at their susceptibility to cardiotoxicity. And they used functional assays in the IPS-derived cardiomyocytes, focused on drugs that are predicted then by these analyses to produce cardiotoxicity. And they actually validated that there was interpatient different response. So patients that were predicted to have a worse response in terms of cardiotoxicity to a certain drug, in fact, their IPS-derived cardiomyocytes bore that out. They did worse off in response to those drugs. And even more so, this is why it's Joseph Wu, and that's why he's a big shot. He, they use CRISPR-Cas9 to drill down into those pathways, you know, to genetically engineer these cell lines to rescue this drug-induced cardiotoxicity. They dug into the pathway, and they short-circuited it and showed that they could rescue that drug-induced cardiotoxicity. So bottom line, this data, it really validates this idea that patient-specific uh, drug safety and efficacy can be predicted using uh, IPS-derived cells, in this case, cardiomyocytes. And it really is a nice step, uh, an important prerequisite towards implementing these precision medicine approaches. Yeah, the precision medicine, personalized medicine is, I mean, I just keep seeing it growing and growing and growing. And the way of the future is that each of us will have you know, everything about us, our doctor will know and we'll be able to figure out exactly what drugs to give us genotyped to us specifically. It's going to be amazing. It is going to be amazing. I think five to 10 years. Keith. Five to 10 years, right. So we began the stem cell portion with a story about virus that was not so encouraging. Uh, and we're going to end with a story that's on the brighter side. So this is not Zika virus, the dreaded Zika virus, but dengue virus, okay? So dengue, let's talk about it. Dengue fever, which is the result of dengue virus, it's affects, there's fewer than 20,000 cases in the U.S. per year. So not a lot of, you know, people in the U.S. are really focused on it, but there's like 400 million cases globally. And a third of the world is in regions that are vulnerable to catch or being affected by dengue virus. And dengue virus can be pretty serious. There's this consequence that rarely happens. It's called dengue hemorrhagic fever, and it can cause bleeding and ultimately in some cases lead to shock and death. So this dengue shock syndrome, as it's called, is, is a pretty bad thing. And a third of the world is, has the potential to be affected by this. So clearly it's a, a disease that we would like to have a vaccine for. And it's surprising that we don't already. But the reason why we don't is because the development of a dengue virus or dengue virus vaccine or antiviral approach, it's been hampered because we don't really have a good understanding of the molecular mechanisms of dengue virus infection and pathology because we don't really have good cell culture models or animal models that can comprehensively capture the cellular changes induced by the virus. So in this study, which is uh, posted on the website, as all of them are, 
the group they used human pluripotent stem cells, differentiated them into hepatocytes, which is one of the major target cells of dengue virus. And they use this as a platform to investigate whether or not they could recapitulate the viral entry and viral pathology in a dish. Uh, and they did. They showed, in some manner they did at least, they showed that these uh, HPSC-derived hepatocyte-like cells, they could support a persistent and uh, productive dengue virus infection. And the infection activated interferon pathways as well as pro-inflammatory signaling pathways, which are both hallmarks of dengue virus infection, as well as down-regulating some liver-specific genes. And, you know, bottom line, they showed that this was a viable platform for studying the pathology of dengue virus and showed that in, in many ways it recapitulated the virus pathology. So moving forward, I think the group has offered up a really nice foundational tool for many groups out there to build on try and understand the virus and develop some vaccines or antiviral approaches. This is great. I mean, dengue is something that is a problem around the world. And um, yeah, being able to figure it out better is going to help us be able to fight it better. I love it. Again, step by step. Yeah, we're getting there. And I feel like once you get, once you start these things, they just serve as kind of a template. Mm -hmm. We're looking at pretty much any virus that has eluded our understanding because we don't have a really solid model. You know, Zika virus, another example, we're kind of already there using neural progenitor cells in vitro to model the virus pathology. But for a lot of other viruses out there, the same problem exists. We don't have a good model for studying it. And this is a great entree into, you know, moving that whole field forward. All right. Well, this was an awesome roundup. Remember that all the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you if you sign up for our newsletter. All right. So now let's get into the interview segment of our show. The interview portion is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies is always creating cool resources for pluripotent stem cell research. Their latest offering is the Pluripotent Learning Lounge webinar series. And you can find this Pluripotent Learning Lounge at www.stemcell.com slash Pluripotent Lounge. And if you go there, you're going to find all sorts of informative video webinars. And these are with stem cell researchers who are working in labs around the world, and they're bringing their research methods to you, discussing them and letting you know what works, why it works, what doesn't work. It's a fantastic educational resource for anyone who's looking to find out more about the latest experimental methods that are being used to study pluripotent stem cells. It's like going to a brown bag seminar without ever having to leave your desk. Get out there, but don't move. Just watch it. Just watch it. <laughs> the latest webinar is Janet Rosant. Her webinar is on disease modeling and future therapies of cystic fibrosis using human pluripotent stem cells. Register now to watch Janet's webinar, check out her interview, and watch other webinars at www.stemcell.com Janet. All right, so our guest today is Alan Eaves. Alan is currently the founder, president, and CEO of Stem Cell Technologies. This is one of the biggest companies in the stem cell space. Dr. Eves, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Good to meet you. It's wonderful to meet you, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. There are so many places that we can go with this conversation, but um, just to get started, can you go back in time and 
describe your start at the bench and what your laboratory, your research laboratory studied? I see. Well, I, it goes way, way back. I was going to be a marine biologist initially, and a lot of people starving in the world. The ocean seemed to be the solution, and also Jacques Cousteau had just invented the uh, uh, you know, scuba gear, and so that was all very exciting. And, uh, and then I realized that doing marine biology required months and months of preparation, and then you were out on a ship, and it was, it was a long, drawn-out thing. And then I discovered cell biology. And so I went and did my master's in cell biology, actually yeast biology. And, and um, my supervisor took off for a sabbatical to Paris right in the middle of it. And so I didn't have a really good experience, and I looked over my shoulder, and my colleagues were taking medicine. So I decided I'd do medicine. And about the same time that uh, a friend of ours got seriously ill with cancer and went on to die, and I thought, you know, I'll just think I'll do work on cancer. So, so I did medicine, and then I did a PhD in, uh, in at the Ontario Cancer Institute, uh, where Bob Bruce was using the uh, colony assays for hemopoiesis developed by Tilla McCullough to uh, categories, chemotherapeutic agents into different types. And so I did my PhD with uh, Bob Bruce and and was very close to Till McCullough, who were also mentors of me. And I also met my wife there, who is now doing a postdoc, and uh, she, is a, she was an immunologist. And so at the end of that period, we, we decided we would work together and uh, move to Vancouver, where there was lots of opportunity because there really wasn't a lot of things going on in Vancouver compared to Toronto and, and Montreal. There are really three major cities in Canada where you can really have the population to do clinical research and and that's Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. So moving to Vancouver was a good move, and uh, I finished up my residency program there in both internal medicine and uh, medical oncology uh, while my wife was working on a lab, and then I joined her once I completed my training, which, you know, I was now medical. I've been a university student for about 20-some years, and by that time, and I really liked being a student. I mean, it was the best time in your life, right? You really didn't have to do any, you didn't have to write grants or get money or anything. You know, people sort of paid you, and it was good. And then, of course, I became a researcher, right? Well, then things all changed, right? Because now you had to fight for grants and, you know, compete for getting your publications and leading journals and all that sort of stuff. And we were hell-bent to actually work on, uh, on hemopoiesis but with in, in the human domain. So we were very interested in leukemia and particularly chronic myelogenous leukemia. And so we worked out ways of uh, using the colony assays of Phil McCullough, but then using uh, cytogenetics to look at whether the cells were the colony was based, was from CML patient or, or normal from the chronic myelogenous leukemia clone or f- were normal progenitors. And at that time, people thought that people with CML were just full of you know, the abnormal clone, and there were no normal progenitors left. And so uh, I had this idea that we would put these cells from patients with CML in culture and early, early patients with CML and see if we could see why the leukemic clone outgrew the normal cells, right? And so we put them in culture and using Mike Dexter's long-term culture, which was a way of looking at cells over time, and what we found was that uh, even in patients that were just full of the Philadelphia positive cells, over a couple of days, really over about 10 days, the leukemic cells all died off and normal cells started to appear, which was totally uh, novel. And so we published that in the New England Journal of Medicine and hypothesized that you now could use this as a way of doing what we call culture purging to get rid of the abnormal clone 
because now there were normal cells growing in the, in these cultures and uh, and using those to do an autologous transplant and still pretty much only about half the patients will have a, a matched sibling donors right and at that time the only the only curative treatment for CML was uh, doing a bone marrow transplant so we developed this method and found that we could take like a hundred big flasks and uh, of marrow from these patients, put in culture for 10 days, leukemic cells would die off, and normal cells would start to grow. And my colleague, uh, Gordon Phillips, who was at St. Louis at the time, he decided he would come to Vancouver and help us start a bone marrow transplant program. We did that, and that developed into quite a big operation. So we were, we were transplanting patients with CML as well as other people with other disorders. And it was amazing. I mean, we got reasonably good results. And and then, uh, of course, Gleevec came along and ruined all this fun because that was secured. <laughs> so, but in that period of time, we, uh, we uh, you know, built a really very significant bone marrow transplant program. And, of course, we were working, had this group in the, you know, the Terry Fox lab. I don't know whether you know, but Terry Fox was a young guy in Canada who uh, had osteogenic sarcoma, had his leg amputated, and decided to run across Canada on one leg to raise money for cancer research. And he made it about halfway across and then relapsed and went on to die. But, but this be, he became a, a sort of symbol of, of the ideal sort of young Canadian, you know, basically doing good things for cancer. And Terry Fox runs now every fall in Canada and all around the world, actually, raising money for cancer research, where the money in other parts of the world stay there and help cancer research. So this is a big thing. So anyway, Terry made this run, and um, we got a little bit of money, got a million dollars from that, and we had used that to help actually build the Terry, what became known as the Terry Fox Lab. And my wife and I built a, a group there of about 12 senior scientists and about 70 or 80 graduate students and postdocs. And, you know, we were doing all sorts of neat and fun things. And at the same time, I became head of hematology and Gordon Phillips was running our bone marrow transplant program. And so we were all working together to do basically apply the knowledge we had in basic science to, you know, clinical applications. And of course, doing this culture purging was, was one of it. And of course, you know, we have a socialized healthcare system in Canada, and uh, one of the reasons that uh, both my wife and I were here, and the reason Gordon was here, is, was because we could treat people without wondering, you know, how financially off they were. So, so it was a sort of a you could do all the patients, and you could do really good clinical trials. So we were we were busy doing that. So it it sounds like you were really uh, your career has been driven towards you know clinical trials, cancer treatment, cures. How did you make the move into starting a reagent company? Well, as you know, there's never enough money to do research. So when we first came to Vancouver, we started uh, selling just media around the, around the city because you had to make your own up uh, your own media, and we we sort of knew how to make it really well, and so we did that, and then it evolved so that. Um, we figured out really good ways of growing hemopoietic progenitors in culture. So you get both red cell growth and, and uh, granulocytic growth in the same culture. So we optimized the culture for that. And that was the basis of a lot of the work we were doing in not only CML, but polycythemia and other disorders. And people wanted to buy that. So we started selling that. Earlier, uh, I had also figured out a way to... Uh, we needed erythropoietin, and erythropoietin was really very hard to come by, but we knew that people who had myelodysplastic syndrome, for instance, and became very anemic and then became transfusion resistant, they couldn't, you know, they would kill off their uh, red cells to transfuse into them. 
So these people would have a hemoglobin of about five, and you had five or lower hemoglobin, which you know you, you, most of us couldn't tolerate at all, you would produce quite a lot of erythropoietin in your urine. And so we figured out a way of purifying that and used that and sold that around the world as well. And so it made several million dollars from doing that. And that actually helped me give startup packages to young scientists in the Terry Fox lab and, uh, and recruit people. And, but it also allowed us to buy the very best reagents. So like a batch of fetal calf serum that would be really good in this would cost basically could be half a million dollars, right? So we would screen for the very best batches and then buy the whole thing. We had the very best reagents and they were all stable because they were, you know, we had a lot of them and, and they were good. So, so putting that into this media, the first media we had, which we called Ready Mix, because it gave you really good red cell colonies and it was sort of like Ready Mix cement because it was sort of gooey. And uh, we advertised it and it started to sell. So um, that was the first product. And um, from then on, we just grew that business. The first year, we made a million dollars just selling stuff, and then it's been growing ever since. And then we added in some cell separation products from one of my colleagues had developed, and now the rest is history. So we have over 850 employees, and we're profitable. We grow at about 20% a year. You know, we're the largest biotech in Canada. It's amazing. So it's all good. And in running a company that's this large, um, what are the processes like compared to running a laboratory, a research laboratory? Can you think of any major differences, anything that's really good or really bad that you can talk about? <laughs> that, I can, that I can talk about. Well, that's, that's a qualifier right there. Yeah. Basically, I spent most of my life arguing with uh, hospital administrators and you know university officials we only feel comfortable allowing you to grow to a certain size because, you know, they got to spread the money around and, you know, resources are always limiting. And, of course, in Canada, where we've got a socialized healthcare system and, you know, the costs are, are way out of control. And, and, of course, everybody's trying to cut back on those costs. So there's very limited money for doing research and doing sorts of things. So getting the resources to even run a bone marrow transplant program was difficult, not to mention actually doing a a somewhat basic science research group. So that was the challenge, was to live through that difficult period and not, not get into too much trouble. But uh, I was definitely known as a troublemaker. So finally, you know, I had to retire when I was 65. They had a rule when you had, when you, you had to retire when you're 65. So I retired. And then, you know, I just moved across the street to this little business that we'd, that we'd started. And over the last 10 years, I've been devoting myself to that. So totally different. There's no limits. You know, it's the quality of your products and, and how you can make everything happen that is, you know, the challenge and the limitations. But really, there's nobody's telling you, you can't do this, you can't do that, right? So I'm having a ball. I still have to listen. Getting a second life a little right Exactly, there. exactly. Now they this is for re retirement. It's uh, pretty, uh, pretty active. <laughs> right. So now they changed the rule. Once they got rid of me, they changed the rule. So that it, so three months later, you didn't have to retire. So my wife, who's a couple of years younger than I am, you know, she's still doing cancer research. And, and you know, she's very successful and just got a paper in Nature. And she's, yes. she's you know, very, very successful. But, you know, going home at night with her is sort of painful. You know, oh, my God, I, my, you know, my grants are getting rejected. My publications are getting rejected. And this really hot student that I thought I was getting is going to Harvard. It's a different life, right? Yeah. And so, and I'm just thinking, to, you know, I just hired three people today. And they're all smart young people who, you know, basically can't get jobs in industry. So I have 150 PhDs and about 100 and more MSCs. And everybody else is really a, a you know, BSc or an engineer. So it's very science-related. And... 
we've got all, all these smart young kids that really can't get jobs in academia. Not that they're not good. It's just that, you know, you've got a PhD now. You can only board an 18% chance of getting a job in academia. So this is a real opportunity for us to, you know, take these smart young kids that love science and give them j really interesting jobs and uh, and let them loose on on the problems of, of cancer, basically. I jokingly say we provide the picks and shovels for the cell therapy gold rush, right? But, you know, it's it's all about, you know, the biggest customers are cancer researchers and, and immunologists doing stuff. It's a great opportunity, and I, and I really enjoy it because just got all these smart young kids around us, and uh, and we're having a ball. It's clear that, I mean, you've made your mark as a, an enabler of many of the probably most important discoveries in treating hematological disorders. So you've got that under your belt. Are, are you still involved directly in any academic research, anything in stem cell tech that, that's really just, you know, basic research uh, with clinical implications? Yes, but we do spend a lot of effort uh, understanding how culture media works and how how to optimize cell separation technologies. Now, we are an enabler because, you know, when you write a grant, you can't write a grant on how to grow cells better. You know, you, you've got to have some, you know, really fundamental, you know, big question that you're asking is going to cure cancer or whatever, right? So we provide these tools, but but in order to make them work work really well, there's a lot of research that has to go into them. I mean, just to qualify all the raw materials that go into our, say, our media, and then testing all those and making sure we've got enough to make large amounts of media because, you know, that's what we have to do. And then and then testing all the finished products and, you know, make sure the, the shelf life is, is good and, and it's all working well and so on. And, the, you know, these are all biological, so they tend to, you know, deteriorate over time. And so figuring all that out uh, and optimizing all that is really research. You know, it just isn't very glamorous, like we're not going to cure cancer, but we're giving people the tools they need to do that. In your own transition, what was the, what would you say is like the most difficult aspect of transitioning? Was there anything that was particularly hard for you personally? Not really. I mean, it was all pretty easy because, um, you know, we, st we started making money. I, I was still working. I was just selling this media actually through the Terry Fox lab, through our cancer research center. And I wanted some more space. And the board of governors said, well, you know, we think you should start your own company. You got eight people here. You want, you know, more, more hoods and stuff, which I really wasn't thinking about. So they sort of pushed me into, into starting a company and becoming a business person. And of course they were all lawyers and, and accountants and they thought this was, this company was going to make a lot of money, you know, and I didn't think that at all. Right. And not only that, you know, I, I, I didn't know where I was going to get the money to really start it. So we did a deal but it took like six months of negotiating back and forth. I had to have, hire my own lawyers and accountants to deal with lawyers and accountants to show that it really wasn't going to be that profitable and that, that good, that, you know, just wouldn't be so wonderful. And I was also mortgaging <laughs> my house to pay for this, right? And wow. uh, that was a little nerve-wracking. But I knew we had a really good product, and plus it was selling anyway. So that was good. And, of course, they, the board of directors, they were right. You know, there was more growth potential, but I didn't know it at the time. But the other thing that I really had to deal with, too, was everybody was saying, you know, well, you need to you need to raise some money with get some, you know, venture capitalists to, to fund you and all this. And I had noticed that some of my colleagues had tried to start companies and basically getting venture capitalists involved was a problem. But I did hire a guy who sort of was a bit of a 
sort of a venture capitalist, and he, he wanted to work for nothing. And I said, no, I want to, I'll pay you for what you're worth because um, he said, yeah, but I'll take a little sweat equity. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, that's a red flag, right? So uh, he worked for a while, and then, and then he said, you know, you know I sh- if I carry on, maybe we should get a little sweat equity. And, you know, and what would that be? Well, I he said, I think probably if I took 40% of the company, that would oh, be fair. Oh, <laughs> Exactly. Wow. So I said, well, hmm, I don't think that's going to work out. So um, so he, he decided he would leave, and I uh, didn't have to pay him anymore, and I hired some other people, and uh, we've not looked back. So there are no investors. I own the company outright, nice. and uh, and that was the best decision ever because, um, you know, you can't listen to these people who say, get some money, go, go and get your family and friends to get some money first, right? Well, as I tell people, well, you're going to get your father-in-law to invest put $100,000 into this company, when everybody says only one in 10 companies survives, you know, chances are your father-in-law is going to be really mad at you in a couple of years because your company isn't going to work out if you just look at the typical odds, right? So don't do that. It's These venture capitalists are trying to get you so engaged in this that you're going to have to go to them to money to pay off your father-in-law, right? No, don't do that. So I, I do go and give little talks on on starting a company and being aware of this of these this mantra that you know you got to start up and you know, things don't work out that's just fine you know um, only one in ten survives anyway so you but you've learned something yeah you've learned how to fire all those people you hired those students and postdocs this is not a good thing to learn about <laughs> so you know there's a myth around starting a company so I'm, I'm all about trying to bootstrap things and do it very carefully and conservatively so we don't take risks. So that's why it's all about research use only primarily, and we focus on, on, on that because there, there's not the regulatory issues, there's not the, you know, all the, the cost of doing a clinical product, although we are moving, of course, in that direction as we do about, we have our medias are in about 20 different clinical trials, and we've just done, uh, just in the last couple of days, finalized a major agreement with uh, General Electric Health, GE Healthcare where uh, we, we're going to provide, we, we developed ways of actually very good ways of growing lymphocytes and enriching for them and also stimulating them. And it's all perfectly related to the CAR T-cell story. And, um, and GE wants to really take those products and, and help us make them GMP and then use those for clinical applications. But they're taking the risk. We're not. We're, we're, we're just going to stay basically doing the research. In terms of risk, Dr. Eves, it's interesting because your story, listening to you, it seems like not that you were backed into it, but you made an important discovery. You created a useful tool and people came. Whereas I've been on the sidelines of some of these new companies that are you know, being built out of whatever IP comes out. And it seems in many of them, just from my observations, that there's some intellectual property and then the people surrounding it say, okay, let's make this into a product. Let's make this into a company. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think that what I, the insight from, from your end is that, you know, make a good tool. Don't focus so much on bringing it to market. Focus on making the tool better and great, and then the money will follow. Do you think that's true, or do you think that maybe your experience is, is, has now evolved to a new era of biotech where, in fact, you license, you IP, you get a hold of all that, and then you create a company and a product after the fact? Yeah, well, you know, I watched some of my colleagues try to do this. If you're going for some big clinical home run, you know, you have to get investors. I mean, there's no way around that. But I chose on purpose to only focus on small things that 
that I could manage, right? And so we knew what we were doing. There was no actually no intellectual property. Everybody knew how to make the medias that we were making. So there was no intellectual property involved. And it was just a question of making the product better than anybody else and being highly competitive. And I chose that route because I just didn't want to get investors who, you know, want you to, they want to pump you up and get a bigger story and because you need more investors. And then you have to get more, as a scientist, you have to get more investors. And but what's happening often is the first investors are selling out to the second investors. So the first guys make some money and they're wonderful serial entrepreneurs and all that nonsense, right? But you as a scientist are left holding the bag with now new investors, a bigger story, and, you know, may go through another iteration or two of that. And then the whole thing collapses because it just isn't a, and the investors suddenly disappear and you're left with these employees that you've hired and, and all, you know, all these commitments and they go off and ah, they don't care. We, we, this is only one of our investments. We only expect to make money from one in 10 anyway. And so, you know, that's okay for those guys, but you as a scientist are left, you know, really holding the bag. And that's, you know, I, I tell people that be very careful. Yeah. Where do you see your company moving in the future, are you going to, I mean, you've, you've said that you're going to continue in the research direction. You're partnering with GE for the clinical side of things. Just for these three products. For those three, very limited. Very limited. Yeah. No, we have total freedom to work in all the others. It's just the CAR T-cell thing that we're working with GE on. So where, where are we going? Well, stay the course or. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're going at 20% a year and, um, and there seems to be no limitation to the, the products that are needed and the quality of those products. We seem to be able to make them very good so that people do want them. We give wonderful service. We, we're, we're, we're very supportive. We've got a, you know, a large sales group that allows us to get a product out and, and used quickly. And people come to us with their ideas of, of products that they would like us to, to make for them. And we, of course, branched into all the different cell types. So, so we have basically divided the company up to be more tissue specific and each team is working on a different area because most people work in a tissue specific area usually on the cancer or the immunological aspects of that so having these highly qualified people working on the products and refining them and making them better in each of these tissue specific areas is, is really what we do we started with hemopoiesis and then we've moved into neural and mesenchymal and breast and prostate and so on. So, um, and of course the big thing now is, is organoids and, uh, you know, we, Hans Cleavers basically, uh, came to us and said, you know, we, would you make the, this media for the growing these organoids? And so, yeah, so we've been, we've been working on that. It, it's taken us quite a, several years to actually we got the the mouse ones going and the, and the human ones are going to be the medias for that are going to be launched very shortly. This is a whole new area. So doing them, not, not just in intestinal, but now in the, all the other tissues as well, you know, there's just a huge opportunity there for drug testing and so on. So it's a great. Uh, yeah. And it, and it really seems exciting that with these tissue specific teams, you're flexible enough to be responsive to these new requests as new stem cell technologies and new investigations lead to new discoveries so that you're able to respond to yes. something like the organoid development and say, okay, we can, let's, let's make this. Yeah. So we have the tissue specific plat, uh, teams and we have uh, what do we call um, our basically um, sort of technology platforms where we have our instruments and our particles and, and the, all the other things that you would want to support a workflow in various tissue specific areas. So antibodies and, you know, cytokines and small molecules and all that. So 
we want to cover the whole waterfront, but where our products are all relate to work together and we have protocols that are really good and we help people do their jobs. We're not trying to compete with people. So we don't really do research. We do development. It's all about helping, you know, our, our headline is scientists helping scientists. And uh, that's, that's what we're all about. And uh, I meet with every new employee and tell them, you know, we're scientists helping scientists. Science is all about discovering the truth about things. So we're all about truth and honesty. So, you know, if you see something around here that you don't think is right, then talk to your supervisor. If they don't listen to you, come see me. And I'm not interested in making money. I'm interested in making really good products, help cancer and other researchers do their jobs better. And um, that's what motivates us. And also, I'm motivated by hiring all these smart young kids that, you know, we don't want to do other things that are not science-related, but they love science. I run it like a graduate training program. There's lots of freedom and lots of opportunities to do things, and it has to be fun. And, of course, Vancouver is a great place to live and raise a family and lead a reasonable life. So we're, we're getting lots of good applicants and um, so good. on that note, maybe uh, we could, I know you, you're juggling a lot of balls, you're doing a million things, so we're going to let you go. But just one last question on that note with your young, this amazing group of young kids you have and you clearly really admire trying to foster. They're in your company. There's some maybe that are transitioning from academia to industry. What kind of advice do you give a young scientist who, who wants to take the industrial track? What's the arc of an industrial career, an I- idealized arc? of an industrial career look like, in your opinion? How would you advise a young person who wants to get into, you know, follow your lead? Basically, it's sort of different, right? We're making products, we're doing research, you know, we're, we're solving problems. So it's not really very different from an academic environment. But if you want to grow and become more managerial, then, you know, you need to read a bunch of books, right, about business. And, uh, you know, the first book I recommend is The One Minute Manager, which is about a, tells you how to manage people, two-hour read, and, and it's just very helpful. But it's useful no matter even if you're just running an academic lab, right? So, and then there's a whole bunch of other books that, that describe what, you know, how to, how to do business, right? Like Good to Great, and there's just a whole bunch of really interesting. So I've read a lot of books in, in business and enjoyed them, and so I recommend those to people too. Now, we have... Of course, about 200 training courses in the company now that teach you know everything from project management to sales skills to managing a difficult colleague. I mean, it's we got it all right, and, and so and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> we want to be and always remain a very educational, learning uh, sort of company. With but it's got to be fun. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate getting to speak with you today. This has been educational and also absolutely inspiring. It's neat to see you having this wonderful burgeoning second career, or I guess, I mean, over the years, maybe it's fourth or fifth career by now. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any, any final funny stories to share with us about your experiences? People like to hear the story about, about, um, I say the Terry Fox lab was built on urine one of the great untapped natural resources of the world, right? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so I used to go and get um, 
I only had a few patients that were good excretors. You had to, like I say, you had to have a hemoglobin of less than five. And mm. and these were older people, really nice people who, who just wanted to be helpful. So I put a freezer in the house and, and collected all their urine. And, 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 and then we, wow. we purified that urine. But then I loaded up my old station wagon with this urine. And, of course, on a hot summer day waiting for a, a ferry here, you know, thinking, you know, oh, my God, I don't want this stuff to thaw because, it, you know, it was actually worth quite a lot of money in a way once I got it processed right and. And of course, they had a young family. They were all crawling around on top of this urine and the and the thing. And I thought, you know, if I had an accident, that would be bad. You know, please. We wonder why I was not wor- worrying about everything. When I was down trying to suck up this urine off the pavement or something, right? <laughs> because it was, it was it was good stuff, right? So there are untouched natural resources. Now, of course, I missed the real, you know, uh, Gene Goldwasser in University of Chicago. He made more, uh, figured this out too, and made a lot of erythropoietin uh, from urine, and that was got the sequence, and then that led to the formation of Amgen. So so I really missed my best business opportunity, which would be a founder of Amgen, but um, uh, we're still going for world domination. It's just going to take us a little longer. So your advice to young scientists, I guess the, the, the greatest businesses are built on pee. <laughs> exactly. There are, there are other things which you won't go into that probably have lots of value too, right? So, right. Uh, <laughs> but that's probably beyond the scope of this conversation. I mean, right yeah. now I'm really pitying Connie with a fridge full of urine. I mean, what right. kind of house were, you, were your kids growing up in? What an amazing way to live. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have it at home. We had it at home. <laughs> Oh my yeah. gosh, I love it. The greatest opportunities from the least likely sources. Yes, exactly. Isn't that always the case. Yeah, leave no stone unturned. And we're glad that you kept turning those stones and showed up and created this company and were now able to speak with us about it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. All right, Kiki, that was a really fascinating interview. Alan Eves, kind of my hero in many ways, a guy who started like me, some poor schmuck at the bench, and now he's like a science rock star, business miracle worker, millionaire. Oh, I wish I could be like him. Maybe. Dare to dream. Come on. You could get there's there. A <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing more patronizing than you can do it. With like a whole, there's a lot of maybe in your voice. <laughs> maybe, but probably not. I don't know. You made it through this summer. So, you know, you put your mind there's to something. Chance. You can Anything do it. Anything can happen. That's Anything right. Anything can happen. Yeah. I, you know, his going from the lab to business, it's not an easy step to make. And a lot of researchers, I mean, thank goodness a lot of universities are trying to put together technology transfer offices and uh, pathways to help researchers do this more easily, but it's not easy. And so it's really amazing that he's a, he's a big success story. But at this point, we should close this show with a good old SCP rant. This rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and most likely bothers you. All right, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? Today, you know, timely with the summer ending and the school year beginning, we're going to rant about the first day of school, not specifically school. School's great. Everybody loves school. We need to educate the kids, but more the parents, the parents and how they deal with the first day of school in this modern era, which is to post the F out of it. What do you think about all the posting? Yeah, this is my kid on his first day of school. 
I think it's, I mean, there's two different mindsets about it. First, as someone who I just have a kid going into kindergarten right now, I've been watching for the last two weeks all these parents posting pictures as the schools ramp up, you know, on their different schedules and everything. But, oh, this child, and I get, you know, you're putting down a memento, a memory that's in this Facebook log or whatever it is for forever. But at the same time, there's a lot of pressure on because of the Pinterest moms, you know, what am I supposed to do the first day of school? Do I have to have like some cute block structure that says kindergarten that I have my child pose on? I mean, am I supposed to hire a photographer to take this picture? There, What outfit is he supposed to wear? Does he really need a haircut? He's five. <laughs> I'm a little stressed out about this. <laughs> so you're feeling the anxiety of the posting, huh? I'm just hating. I'm just hating. But I'll be honest, I'm hating myself. I don't care about seeing... I'd be interested in seeing your kid. If you want to post, if you want to be a Pinterest mom, I would have a look at your Pinterest wall or whatever it's called. But I don't really care about anybody else. I care about my kid. Right. So I'm I'm psyched to have my wife post so that I can see my kid. And I mm-hmm. feel like everybody in the world wants to see my kid too. But let's be honest, nobody does. Nobody <laughs> cares. And the whole blasting things out there for the world to see as though it actually is unique and special like every other navel-gazing aspect of our solipsistic society is so ridiculous. But I have to say, I am guilty as much as most parents. I know, and I'm probably going to take that picture. I don't know that my son will get a haircut before the first day of school, but... (sighs) But listen, I don't think you need to hire anybody. I think think your iPhone or your smartphone is going to be just I'll just take those pictures, but jeez, the pressure! Ah! <laughs> don't succumb don't succumb it's not such a big deal if you don't post uh, i'll be honest n- nobody's gonna call you out on it nobody's gonna be that upset all right everyone are you posting your kids pictures for the first day of school on social media is that what you're up to if you are i don't care to see them but you can tell us that you are. Yeah, don't send us the picture. Just let us know if you're doing this, too. Are you upset about it? Let us know. You can also send us rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Daylon, this concludes episode 73 of the Stem Cell Podcast. It was a great show. Some good stories, really great interview. And next week, we will have another show full of fun and science and stem cells, as usual. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, Kiki. I can't wait.